All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you're new with us, we preach through books of the Bible, and uh, you have caught us in a study. It's going to be a rather lengthy study uh, through the book of Acts, and we'll be in verses 11 through 26. Uh, Lord willing, this morning we'll we'll make it through the end of of chapter 3. So before we, we, we just jump into verse 11, we need to catch up where we were last week and, and set the scene, because the scene from last week is, is, is immediately what follows it is what we're going to read this morning. So if you don't understand the scene from last week, it's going to be very difficult to understand um, what Peter is doing. The, Peter is preaching another sermon. So this is the second sermon. We heard one in Acts chapter 2 and now Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon was following um, that moment in the upper room where the Holy Spirit comes and falls and people begin to, to speak in other tongues and that was known languages. And Peter then following that event, right, that needed some explanation, preaches a sermon. Right, so now what we had last week was a healing, and this was really uh, the, the the first miracle of, of fourteen miracles that we're going to see in the book of Acts. This is the first one, and in in a rhythm or pattern that we're going to see in Acts is that when there's a miracle, what closely follows it is an explanation. What closely follows it is a a, a sermon or a teaching going, "Hey, listen, this is what's taking place here." And so if you recall from last week, the beginning of chapter 3, there was a man outside of the temple who was there day after day after day who, who had not been able to walk his entire life, right? The, the writer of Acts, Luke, makes it clear that this man had been lame since birth. And so he would be there asking for alms, asking for money, and, and Peter and John come by him as they're at the temple, and they say, look, it's this famous scene, right, where they go, listen, a silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have is more powerful than that. It's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk, right? And what happens? Boom, they lay hands on him. He lifts up, right? He begins to walk, and where is the first place that he heads, right? It says that he's leaping in the temple, so he's leaping and he's praising God. He's celebrating. He's, 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 he's worshiping the God who has healed him, right? And this is, there's a huge crowd around. This is the temple. Thousands of people are around observing, wait, this lame man who we know has not ever walked in his life is now walking. And so here's why Peter follows with an explanation. He follows with a sermon, another sermon. And I'm going to walk quickly through the sermon um, because really the sermon makes its points on its own. But here's what I want us to hear. Here's what I'm praying. I pray for the 9 a.m. for us here in 1045 that we would, we would actually hear it. And not just with our eyes, but with our ears. Because what's contained in Peter's sermon, I'm afraid, in the Parks Church, I'm just speaking to our church and even my own life, is that the way in which Peter describes Jesus has become so familiar to it, to us that we've become so um, just familiar with the language that Peter's going to use that I'm going to reiterate that it actually doesn't have any impact on us, that it actually doesn't strike us and, and create a wonder and awe around the person and work of Jesus. Like that's what Peter's sermon is all about. It's all about Jesus Sam even said it here. What are we all about? We're all about Jesus. And so listen, we have this incredible miracle that happens. This this lame man, he stands up and he is on his legs because Jesus has healed him. And Peter goes, listen, I I don't want anybody to be mistaken why this man was healed and how he was healed. He was healed by the power of Jesus. How are you healed? How was I healed? You see, when the Holy Spirit moves, when the power of God shows up in mighty ways, oftentimes even the people of God, 
their eyes go to the wrong place and the wrong source. And so that's why Peter is like, no, look to the source. And he describes, and this is one of the most, in, in a short passage, the most Christological passages in all of our Bible. And what do I mean by that? It is the most clear picture of who Jesus is. And so I want us to listen with fresh ears and allow it to shape our hearts. And maybe for you, you're not a believer and you're just peering in. Maybe you're here with family or friends or whatever. Like, I pray this morning that you see clearly who Jesus, the Jesus of Christianity, not, not of religion, right? Not of tradition, but the Jesus of Christianity, who he really is and what he's really about. And so let's look at it in verse 11. While he, that's the man who had just been healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And so Peter is acknowledging what I just said, right? There is a tendency to look at the wrong source. Peter goes, why are you guys looking at us? Why are you staring at us in wonder as if it's our power that healed this man? And I love just, just the way that Luke includes these details. It says that he's, he's like clung to Peter and John, right? Like, wouldn't you, though? Like, I'm not leaving these guys. You know, like, it's like my kid when I'm trying to, like, leave for the office. It's like on my leg. Like, listen, bro, you can't go with me, right? But Peter and John, it's giving testimony. Here is why I think Luke includes it is because it's giving testimony. This man wants everybody to be certain where his healing came from. And it's not Peter and John, but it's the God that they proclaim. And so he's staying close to say, listen, I'm just a living testimony of their God. I'm just walking proof that their God is who he says he is. And so this is what Peter does, is he gets up and he proclaims God. He proclaims Jesus. Again, in Acts, when we see these miracles, when we see the power of God show up, whose name is brought up immediately following? Class, Jesus, Jesus The Holy Spirit's moved. There's been this healing. Let's talk about Jesus because he's moving in power. And so here's what I want us to see. I want us to see how Peter describes Jesus, the words that he uses. And there are five very clear ways in which he describes Jesus. And almost all of them, hear me, almost all of them come from the Torah or the prophets. So this Jewish audience, Peter is going, listen up. Listen to who this is. Look at it. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, and when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What a sermon. And you killed the author of life, keeps going, whom God raised from the dead to this We are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of us all. All right? So part one of his sermon. Right? He comes out guns a-blazing. I like Peter's style. All right? Like, he just comes out. And he goes, listen, you want to know who Jesus is? The first thing that he says about him is this, is that Jesus is the suffering servant. Did you get that? Oh, it doesn't include suffering at this point, but he says that God has glorified his servant, Jesus. When did God glorify Jesus? 
In other words, when did God show his approval over the sacrifice of Christ? At the resurrection. It was the resurrection is the glorification of Jesus. That Jesus is the servant of the most high God. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, he came not to be served, but to serve. In this service, right, came on a road and a life marked with suffering. Think about it. What led to the glorification or the resurrection of Christ? What was the event that immediately preceded that? Right? If you know your Bible, you know the answer is the cross. His death. This brutal death. You see, to this Jewish audience, what they're listening and they're hearing is is these terms are familiar. God glorified his servant, this suffering servant. That kicks them back to the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, written hundreds and hundreds of years before, literally verses 42, or chapters 42 all the way through 53, talk about the servant of God, the Messiah coming, and the way in which he's coming is as the suffering servant. Look at it in, in, in chapter four, uh, 52, if you can. It says, Behold, this is, this is from the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is, this is prophecy. This to the audience, Peter's going, listen, this servant is Jesus. This is the servant that God glorified. And what did it look like? Go to Isaiah 53. You know this chapter. But I just want us to see here in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Listen, that is us. That is our attitude apart from our eyes and our hearts being open to the reality of who Christ is. We despise him and we reject him. This whole sermon by Peter is pointing to that fact with this group of people, like you rejected him. This is what the prophet Isaiah was talking about. But here's the reality of what happened. It says that we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But, verse 5, one of the beautiful buts of the Bible, right? But he was wounded for our transgressions. The cross, the suffering, was for my sin, your sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are what? Healed. But here's the fact. I think we've lost the awe of that reality. That our salvation comes through a suffering servant. To someone God has sent not in a beautiful, glorious, white robe, right, shining, but literally to lay down his life for you and for me. That's the first description. The second one, look at this. I hope you picked it up because it was capitalized in your Bible, verse 14. But you denied. You denied not only that fact, but you denied the holy and righteous one. So the second thing is this, Peter's pointing to, is going, Jesus is the holy and righteous one. That literally in the scene that he's describing with Pilate, That Barabbas is put up and Pilate's going, listen, I can't find anything in Jesus of guilt. I can't find anything to crucify this man. But here is the reality. I'll put up for you Barabbas, who is a guilty murderer, is charged. Who do you want released? Jesus or Barabbas? Right? Go back and read the Gospel of Luke. You know the the crowd, they, they jeer. They want Barabbas, right? Barabbas, Barabbas. And then he goes, what? Then what should I do with Jesus? What should I do with this man? And the crowd responds as well, right? Crucify him. Crucify him. And Peter's going, you did that to the holy and righteous one. 
The one who was innocent died, and the one who was guilty lived. Sound familiar? Listen, Peter is pointing to the substitutionary nature of Jesus. That literally your story and my story is the story of Barabbas. We are guilty as charged. The penalty on our lives because of sin is death. Except there is a way to escape death and get life. And it comes from the holy and righteous one alone. It's that we have a substitute. He keeps going. In verse 15. And you killed the author of life. So we have Jesus as the suffering servant. We have Jesus as the holy and righteous one. We have Jesus now and Peter's sermon being described as the author of life. He's going, you killed the source of life. And it's not just that, that, that life flows from him, meaning that, that, that he is the originator of life. And some of your Bible translations say that, and that's a good word. But it also means that in him is found life. Like it's not just originating from him, but he's the, he's the very source of life itself. And he goes, you've killed, you killed him. We murdered him. We're, we're, we're guilty of taking the very source of life. He says, but... God raised him from the dead, right? Because the final word is not your word or my word. The final word is always God's word. And I want to bring a point here to say, okay, did people really take Jesus' life? I think the word of God is clear how Jesus died. Jesus willingly laid his life down for you and me. You see, the author of life is in control of all of life, including his death. It says that we are witnesses to his life. And his name, verse 16. In verse 16, by the way, is really answering the question that he raised in verse 12. He says, you want to know where this healing came? It came from his, this, his name. By faith in his name, was made, this man was made strong whom you see. And that faith is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. I love that, that Luke includes that. Right? He just didn't say this man was able to walk. He didn't say just, he just restored his legs. No, he was given perfect health. And he's not just talking that this man is not going to die, like he's going to be healthy for the rest of his life. He's talking about this man's deepest need, that his sin-stricken soul has been saved. And the only way that salvation comes to anyone, including this man, right, is through Jesus Christ. So Peter is announcing to this Jewish audience, listen, the object of our faith, our trust, all of us, is Jesus. It must be Jesus. That the only way of salvation comes through this man. And he's saying that the guy clinging to me is evidence of that. This perfect bill of health that you see goes much deeper than just his legs working. You see, Peter is being very clear about how and why this healing came. This healing did not come because John and Peter are super saints. This healing came because Christ moved in power and healed him. John Stott, I love it, who, who, somebody who we've referenced in the book of Acts before, he says this. He says, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. You get that? The power was Jesus' who healed this man so he could walk. The power was Jesus' who healed this man's heart, freed him from sin. 
but the hand was Peter's. Oftentimes, even in the church, we focus on the wrong source again. We focus on the hand. Okay, we focus on the servant. We focus on the church. We focus on this or that. When we need to see that the power belongs to Jesus Christ alone. It's his. He is the way that the power of salvation is made known to us. He's the way in which people are healed, both literally and spiritually. He's it. And here's his grace that he uses us. He uses, just like he did here, two faithful men, Peter and John, to witness to this fact. But the object of our faith, hear me, is Jesus. But for so many of us, let's be honest, the object or the thing that we're really relying or putting faith in is not Christ. Like, what is it that in your life you really trust? That you really you really depend on or lean on. And oftentimes that's God's grace is that he exposes us by pulling that out from under us, right? That wall that we're propped up on that's false, that's not Christ, that object that we're leaning into our faith, he exposes it by removing it. That comfort, that security, that control. Listen, Peter's pleading with them and for us. Listen, the object of our faith belongs in one place, Jesus. Jesus Christ alone. And then really what Peter does from verse 18 through 22 through 26 is he describes Jesus as the fulfillment of all prophecy. He's the fulfillment of everything that the word of God points to in terms of the Messiah. And so look at it in verse 18. And we'll start in verse 17 so I don't get accused of skipping any verses. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Like, he's even going, listen, guys, I know there was a blindness. You didn't see. You had scales on your eyes. Your, Your hearts were hard. I know that there was an ignorance about you, as did the rulers. But God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Here we get into suffering servant. He thus fulfilled. Peter goes, God did it. God did exactly what he said he would do from the foundations of the earth in Christ. The Messiah, the appointed one, is Jesus. And it played out exactly like God said it would. Verse 22, he gets even more specific. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall be all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, again, back to servant, sent him to you first, Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Did you just see who Peter evoked there? Moses, Samuel, and everybody who came after him, and Abraham. I mean, he's just pulling all the big guns out, right? He's using Moses, and he goes, listen, Moses even said, one is coming after me. And this is where we get that idea that, that Jesus is the better and truer Moses because he's the one who actually sets us free from slavery, not just from a physical oppressor, but a spiritual oppressor known as sin. That is the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying. And he's going, listen to all the prophets. They point, both verbally and with their lives, to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it all. And if there was any question 
Peter makes the most definitive statement in verse 20. He says this, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he, the Lord, may send the Christ appointed for you. Who's the Christ? Jesus, right? I figured you would have got it by now, but Jesus Jesus is the Christ. The last point Peter is making is this. Listen, and, and listen, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, okay? It's a title. It's who he is, right? Jesus, the appointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. And by the way, I think this is the moment because his sermon gets interrupted by the council and John and Peter get drugged to jail, right? In front of the council. They get pulled away. I think it's at this moment in their sermon where the Sadducees go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And they pull them, and we're going to see this in chapter 4, pull them in front of them. It's this incredible scene, but it is, it is without a doubt what Peter is proclaiming, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the way. But, but we've heard this before, right? Like, look at me. I don't think I have said anything here that I have not said a million times from this stage, and probably that you haven't heard if you've been in church for any amount of time, a hundred times before. But here's the reality. It's lost its power. It's lost its sense of awe that Jesus is the Savior. He is the the appointed one, the Messiah sent to save us. He is the suffering servant who gave his life. He is the one who is holy and righteous. What we could never be, he is. The one who was substitute, my substitute, your substitute. Like, how, how do we respond to that? By just showing up to another service? By getting in our community groups or getting in whatever? How do we respond to that? And all those are good things, right? But how do we respond truly when we understand who Jesus is? Well, Peter would tell this crowd and us the same thing. Look at it. Verse 19. Repent. If you believe this, if you believe this is truly, this is truly who Jesus is, here is the necessary response. Repent. Therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You get that? Like the response and the result, the response is this one of repentance and turning from ourselves to God in Christ. But he doesn't just ask that without giving the beauty of that response. Did you notice that? So that what happens a time of refreshing. Literally, that word can be translated also a time of rest or a place of rest might come over you. That in repentance, your sins are forgiven. And he says in verse 21, he says, he says that a time of, of, of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed one for you whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Do you see that there's both the now and the hope of the future? That is the refreshing and the rest that comes now in Christ when we truly come to a place of repentance and brokenness before the Lord, but there is also a future hope that one day all things will be made right where there will be no brokenness there will be no sickness, there will be no, no anxiety, no depression, no cancer, there will, be, there will be no torment of sin in this world. Like, my heart longs for that day, right? But listen, in the now, there's a promise by Christ for refreshing, but the prerequisite for refreshing and rest is what? Repentance. 
Repentance. I want, I need refreshing. I long for it in my heart, in my life, and in this church. And listen, I'm, I'm just talking to us as a church. We need to be refreshed. We need to be, and, and this is so consistent with where Elizabeth was with the, the, the women on Friday night. We need, to be, we need to be awakened to who our God actually is and who he really is. But listen, when God does that, listen, we can't conjure up repentance. Repentance, like faith, is a gift given by God. But when he draws us to himself, when he draws us to that place of repentance, there we will find what we're looking for in all of those other avenues. We will find what our hearts are searching for. It's there and only there in that place of brokenness that God will fill us up and restore us and revive us to the place he has for us. But not until we understand him. Not until we understand truly who Jesus Christ is. Church, I think we, myself included, do not have a good grasp on truly what the gift of God-given repentance really is. That he's calling us and drawing us constantly to a better way. To a way of actually that will lead to refreshing and renewal and rest. I'm weary. Anybody else in here just weary? No, three of us. All right, we can talk afterwards. We'll have a little group out here. Is that cool? But I think one of the reasons we're so weary is because we actually, I actually haven't come to a place of repentance. A place where my life is reoriented around God and not around me. R.C. Sproul, and this will be where I end. R.C. Sproul, in talking about repentance, um, he says this. He says, when Jesus spoke of repentance, because I think even when I say the word repentance, our minds default to behavior modification. Change this, fix this, do, you know. Listen to this. When Jesus spoke of repentance in connection with the kingdom of God's, and coming of God's kingdom, he was not referring to superficial change. Right, just moving the, it's a shell game. He was not talking about breaking off from some particular sin and reforming your life, though, of course, that is included. Rather, he, Jesus, was calling for a total change in orientation. A total change. Mind, heart, everything, a total change of orientation. It was, it was great. After our, our last service, a pilot came down. And he says, I think for the most part, most people don't understand the, the weight and gravity of the word orientation. And he explained, he goes constantly, as a pilot, what we are doing by the hour is making sure our orientation is in the right place. Because if our orientation gets slightly off, we're, in the, we're, in the, we're trying to land in Hawaii and we end up, you know, somewhere else, Right? Listen, as believers, we constantly, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to be working in such a way that we're checking our orientation. Because our, listen, my default orientation, you want to know what it is? It's me. It's Kyle. It's, it's what my preference is. It's what myself is. It's what benefits me. Right? And, and I slap Jesus on those things all the time. But is my real orientation God and the things of God afforded to me in Christ? Is it really what Christ has called me to? I mean, that's what Jesus himself says. Listen, you want to know what the greatest commands are? Love God with everything you are. That's going to keep you oriented. And then love others. There's your orientation. And true repentance 
will lead us, will change us to have that orientation and not ourselves, but not until we fully understand who Christ is. You see, church, we don't need more fine-tuning. A little twist here, a little twist there. What we need is an absolute overhaul. And that only comes by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would press into our hearts as a church a truer picture of Christ, a true wonder at what he did for us, the weight of truly what his name embodies the power that he is still working in and through the church. God, my eyes are so fixated upon things of this earth that I ask you to detach my mind, my heart, my strength, my eyes from those things and that my heart might be captured again by Jesus that in brokenness, that it is, as we sang, that your kindness brings us to repentance. That in your kindness and in your grace, you would bring us to a place of brokenness so that we might be made whole, so that we might understand true life, so that we might understand where refreshing and rest truly come from. God, I am so weary of going through the motions leaning on false walls, facades. God, I want you. I want more of you and do whatever you need to make that true in my life. God, may we be a community, a church, hungry for your presence, hungry for putting ourselves and posturing ourselves in the presence of our God, the God who redeemed us, the God who saved us, a God who sent his son who was holy and righteous and innocent to pay my debt. God, I pray for us, even as we wrestle with understanding repentance, I pray that we might, we might again go to your word and let that be the orientation of our lives. That we might live faithfully as servants to the Most High God, not orienting our lives around ourselves any longer, but orienting our lives completely around you, around you that calls us to care about others more highly than we care about ourselves. God, I pray that you would give this church the faith to actually obey, to obey the direction you're calling her, the faith and the courage to actually follow through with how your spirit's leading us. God, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you for a sermon within a sermon that shapes and molds us and makes us more into Jesus. Continue your work through this body for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.